Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Father Michael Ward. He is research fellow at Blackfriars Hall, University of Oxford, professor of apologetics at Houston Baptist University. He's the author of numerous things, including Planet Narnia, The Seven Heavens and the Imagination of C.S. Lewis, and co-editor of The Cambridge Companion to C.S. Lewis. His new book is After Humanity, A Guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. That's our topic today. Welcome, Father Ward. Thank you, Mark. Glad to be with you. Uh, first, uh, maybe, maybe I should ask you sort of a, a general question. You're devoting the entire volume to this one book. It's a close commentary. Uh, where does Lewis's volume rank, would you say, broadly among thinkers today and maybe in the Anglo-American world? I think it ranks highly. Uh, this is one of the reasons why I thought uh, a whole volume de dedicated to expounding and guiding people through the abolition of man was worth it because it's held in such high esteem by by not only, um, you know, significant thinkers, but a, a wide range of significant thinkers. So in Britain currently, we have a notable philosopher called John Gray, and he happens to be an atheist. But he regards the abolition of man very highly and gave a whole BBC radio broadcast about it not so long ago. Then within the frame, the framework of believers, um, it's not just Lewis's own fellow Anglicans who like it, but evangelicals and indeed Catholics. Uh, the former, uh, the former Pope, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, when he was Cardinal Ratzinger, praised the keen accuracy of Lewis's moral diagnosis in The Abolition of Man. He gave a whole talk largely about it in Cambridge when he visited England as cardinal. And you look at a you know, noted uh, evangelical Anglican scholar like Alan Jacobs, who's described it as the profoundest of Lewis's cultural critiques. So evangelicals, Catholics, atheists, they all regard it highly. Mm -hmm. And it's described by, you know, Lewis scholars at Walter Hooper, Lewis's editor and biographer, described it as, as an all but indispensable introduction to the entire corpus of Louisiana. So um, when, when you've got all these different people praising it, um, you think this book deserves some closer attention. <laughs> and that's why I've read this guy. Indeed. Well, well, when and why was it composed? The Abolition of Man was composed in 1943, so right slap bang in the middle of the Second World War, and it originated as three lectures in philosophy that Lewis gave at the University of Durham in the north of England, and uh, it was part of a regular annual series of lectures that were put on at Durham, 
and Lewis's series was the 15th series, um, but it's become easily the best known of, of all the, the all the lectures in that series, which still goes on today, as it happens. It's called the Riddle Memorial Lecture Series. Mm -hmm. And um, Lewis went up to Durham and gave these three lectures and perhaps didn't think that it would necessarily result in a in a you know a classic work in his repertoire but that's what it's become it was published as a as a slender little volume later that year and um it's gone on to acquire quite a classic status uh, it's a very uh, a central work of well of of, of lewis's own thought it, it's been described as the linchpin to all his uh, output and uh it's a difficult work that's why, and that's why again I've written this guide because although it's important and highly regarded by a lot of different people, it's also quite hard going for for the average person in the street. Um, if you haven't been philosophically trained, as indeed I have not been philosophically trained, um, it's it's liable to cause you some confusion. And because I haven't been philosophically trained, I can sympathise with that confusion and and uh, I see it in my own students and that's another reason for for writing this guide to yeah. to uh, help people get the best out of what is admittedly quite a difficult work you, you say that you, you quote Lewis stating in the mid 50s that the book uh, kind of was published and, and it disappeared but you say that that isn't quite true <laughs> Lewis liked I think to underplay his successes um, I don't I don't call it dishonesty, but it was certainly uh, modesty pushed to the limits. <laughs> um, so yeah, he described it as having been almost totally ignored by the public. Uh, well, I wonder what he really meant by that, because it, it sold well, it went into uh, three reprints within the first year of its publication, it, hmm. it went, went to a second edition, it went from hardback to paperback. It was published in America, uh, as well as in Britain. Um, so it can hardly be described as a failure. Yeah. Um, in comparison, say, with Lewis's most successful works, like um, the Screwtape Letters, for instance, uh, you, I suppose you could legitimately describe it as as not a great success. But then, you know, the Screwtape Letters was an absolute, um, you know. Uh, what's the right word? Um, you know, smash, uh, smash hit. That's the word. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was yeah. a total smash. The screw tape letters, and you can't expect a smash with every book you put out. And for a work like this, The Abolition of Man, which was academic philosophy, it was a solid seller right from the start, and has remained so. Uh, to get to philosophy, you, you note that what might have been. Uh, a primary impetus, at least for the the intellectual angle, the philosophical angle, was a disagreement, an argument he had with logical positivism. What was the background there? Logical positivism was a, a, a relatively new uh, line of thought in modern philosophy, and it's often associated, at least in Britain, with um, the name of A.J. Ayer, Freddie Ayer, who was a, a don at Oxford um, and wrote a, an important influential book called Language, Truth and Logic, um, in which he argues that 
Um, statements which can't pass the verification principle are effectively meaningless. And by the verification principle, he means essentially um, statements which can't be uh, demonstrated scientifically. Um, and it was a very crude philosophy, really. And, and A.J. Ayer himself later withdrew almost all that he had argued in language, truth and logic. But by that stage, it had had quite an impact and other people had got on the bandwagon. And Lewis described logical positivism as a as a plaguey philosophy. Hmm. Um, and as he describes it also as the sort of the, the lobby entrance, the ante room to the complete void philosophically speaking. Um, he thought it was a terrible departure for philosophers to take. And um, it's, it's sort of, uh, you know, an early stage of what we might now call scientism, you know, mm -hmm. the idea that all truth can be reduced to the scientific form of truth. Um, and that's clearly untrue, because as soon as you apply that very principle to A.J. Ayer's own statement, uh, it can't be proved scientifically. It's a philosophical statement. Um, and and so the problem with logical positivism is that it doesn't critique its own uh, standards by its own standards, yeah. if you see what I mean. Um, and, and Lewis saw straight through it, and indeed more, more philosophically plausible versions of, of this same kind of error, um, and attacked it. On, on all fronts. And so the abolition of man is in large part a response to positivism and, and subjectivism more generally. Subjectivism being the idea that, um, you know, there's, there, there's no real objective truth, um, but it's just what we claim personally to be truth, which is truth. Yeah. In other words, it's, a, it's the product of our wills, of our of our private subjective preferences, um, and subjectivism is a is a is a stronger philosophical opponent than positivism. Um, it's got it's got more going for it. I mean, it's still totally wrong um, in in Lewis's estimation, um, but it's a it's a more respectable opponent. Yeah, yeah. You know, Ayer's language, truth, and logic. It was such a handy little publication. You know, le positivism could get very technical. And, and sometimes even mathematical, uh, but but his Ayer's version, it, it was it was very reader friendly. It could be very it could be popularized very easily, and I, I imagine that irked that 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 irked him equally as with the ideas themselves. But let, let me get to the title. Where did the title come from? The abolition of man. That's uh, that that's melodramatic, isn't it? <laughs> Well, it's certainly, uh, you know, eye-catching. It's a bit alarmist, you might say. Um, and it's rather offset by the subtitle that Lewis gives to The Abolition of Man, which is much drier and, and uh, less alarmist. Uh, and the, the uh, subtitle, of course, is, is Reflections on Education with Special Reference to the Teaching of English in the Upper Forms of Schools. <laughs> I like that. So I think you put the alarmist title alongside that dry and excessively long subtitle and and you come out at a at a relatively regular normal level. Yeah. Uh, uh it's But but the thesis really comes out of something in the premises 
or the practices of subjectivism does lead to the abolition of something that we would consider essential to our humanity. What Absolutely. would what yeah. would that be? What 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 is what is lost? What is what does subjectivism take away from us? Subjectivism uh, takes away from us our our chest. Uh, that's why the first lecture is entitled "Men Without Chests." So yeah, the the argument Lewis is making is not a particularly theological argument. It's not a work of Christian apologetics, the abolition of man. It's a work of philosophy and more specifically philosophical anthropology. In other words, you know, what 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 is it that constitutes our humanity? And Lewis is writing from an ethical point of view. He's trying to work out what it, how it is that we can discern right from wrong, good from evil. Um, and he, he develops this model of the human person in three parts, the head, the chest, and the belly. And he says that from the the belly downwards, we're like the animals in that we have sensations and passions, uh, we have appetites. From the neck up, we are like the angels or possibly like the demons in that we are we are spiritual. We are we are, we can plug into this realm of spirituality called reason. We are rational. Um, but between the head and the belly, we have the chest. And this, Lewis describes as the, the sort of definitively human faculty. Uh, it's what provides a kind of liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man, between our, our senses, our, our passions, our emotions, and our thoughts and our reasons. And that's why, you know, a classic definition of the human person is rational animal. We mustn't pretend that we are not animals. Uh, the body matters and our senses and our, our passions matter, but that we mustn't be ruled by our senses and our passions. On the contrary, uh, the head must rule the belly, and it does that through the chest. Um, if, th if there wasn't this liaison officer between head and belly, then the head would, as it were, just sort of squelch our passions. And you see some people trying to live uh, as if they were purely cerebral, purely rational, and it doesn't work out very well for very long. Um, you, you've got to have this intermediate zone, um, which kind of meshes the gears between the head and the belly, and that's the chest. And if we go down the line of subjectivism, then effectively we are abolishing the chest and therefore abolishing ourselves as human beings, the abolition of man. Um, the, the chest is the place where sentiments can become stabilized, where they can become regularized and civilized. And that's the, that's the definitively human uh, state of affairs. That's what's under threat by subjectivism. Because in order to have that stability, one has to assume or find an objective moral truth of some kind. Yes, because, you know, when we are faced with things in the world, uh, which we might, you know, desire, say, um, food or sex or power, or whatever it is, th things which speak to our passions, um, our passions desire those things and, and not necessarily wrongly. Um, those things are all essentially good if they're taken in the right way, uh, 
at the right time, but it's our capacity to reason about those desirable things which will result in our taking them in the right way and in the right time. Uh, if we just let our passions rule the t run the table, uh, we'll soon find ourselves living like animals. And if we pretend that these things are not desirable, and that we, we can live on cold, emotionless calculation in the head, well, then we'll find that we, we're, we're living a, a subhuman life as well, a, a less than truly human life. We, we may think that we can be like the angels, but if we try and live angelically, we'll soon find out that we're living demonically. Um, and that's what Lewis tries to dramatize in, in his novel, That Hideous Strength, which is the third volume in his Ransom trilogy. And it's the kind of fictional counterpart to the abolition of man. Um, that those people who find the abolition of man difficult um, and want to see it sort of dramatized should turn to, the, to that hideous strength where the ideas are, are put into story form. And uh, I, I highly recommend that hideous strength. It's a great novel, absolutely brilliant, one of my favorites. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. There's an irony here in that subjectivism, I, I guess you could give subjectivism a soft or even a sentimental form where you say subjectivism is where we really, really get down to the core of our, our humanity, where, where we really become most ourselves is, is when, when we are fully free in our subjectivity, but... Actually, you, your, your term for this is that uh, this mode of subjectivism is, quote, vicious. That's inevitable. Mm. Is it inevitable yeah. that subjectivism, we're, we're going to end up uh, in, in forms of uh, a dehumanizing anarchy? Yes, because if we live in community, which we do, um, your subjective desires and my subjective desires are likely to compete. They're likely to collide. And how can we adjudicate between yours and mine um, without some kind of agreed objective common ground between you and me, where we can thrash things out rationally um, by, by talking about what is there on the table between us? Uh, where, yeah, admittedly, we have our own subjective perspective. And Lewis isn't wanting to deny that we have subjective perspectives. Of course we do. It, it's, it's you who feels these things. It, it is I who feels and thinks these things. But it's not just the product of my own desire or my own will. It's also a recognition of something outside myself, which I have to come to terms with, and which, indeed, I, I can be helped to come to terms with by your perspective. You can help me, and I can help you. And between us, we can come to a, a closer uh, acceptance of, of the reality which confronts us both. But if we don't accept that common ground, then it's 
it pretty quickly devolves into war, either intellectual mm. war or actual war. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nature is red in tooth and claw, and human nature is something above mere nature in that sense. Yeah. Uh, after these introductory remarks in the book, uh, we get to the, the main part, uh, which begins the commentary. Why don't you just describe for our listeners, what is the format in that, in that long section? Yeah, the, the bulk of the book, chapter seven, is, is a commentary and gloss upon the whole of the abolition of man. Now, the abolition of man, as we say, is, is, is three short philosophical lectures. Um, and so a line by line and almost word by word commentary in this section of my guide um, mm -hmm. is not excessive um, because there's, there's quite a lot in the abolition of man, which is just difficult for the average person to understand. Uh, Lewis litters the, the, the page with phrases from Latin and Greek and French, and he assumes everybody understands them. And perhaps they could be uh, you know, assumed to understand them back in 1943 when he was giving these lectures at Durham. But now the book comes before you and me. <laughs> I don't know about you, but <laughs> I have little Latin and less Greek. Yeah. Um, so that just giving that kind of practical translation to some of the difficult terms is one of the aspects of this commentary and yeah. gloss. But in addition to glossing the particular difficult terms, I give commentary both from my own observations and I, I quote the best uh, secondary sources. I, I've, I've gone through all the books and articles about the abolition of man and I, I cite the, the choice passages here and there which relate to the, the bits of Lewis's argument that we're, that we're on at that point in the book. Um, and I myself have found it an extremely helpful process to go through because as I say I, I'm not no philosopher myself and I, I found the abolition of man difficult and um, although it's difficult it's not incomprehensible when you give it time, when you give it attention and some sustained thought then you can realize why it is that it's achieved this classic status and been approved by such a wide range of readers. Mm -hmm. uh, as we move in through your commentary, we quickly see that Lewis isn't turning first to a, an original work of philosophy. He's, he's not going back to you know, Rudolf Carnap. He is turning to a textbook. Why, why does he care about a textbook for, for school, for, for, what, what would, is it, would you say high school textbook? Yeah. Yeah. Something like, um, I always forget the precise correlation between what, <laughs> right, mean, right, what right. we would mean by high school. But yeah, it's a, it's a textbook that, that Lewis calls the green book, though in reality it was called the control of language. Uh, and Lewis gives it this sort of, this pseudonym, so as I suppose, not, not to give it any undue publicity. Um, and he also gives pseudonyms to the authors of the book, who, who he calls Gaius and Titius, but they were really called Alec King and Martin Ketley. And I've got little passages about these authors and photographs of them indeed in, in my book. Mm -hmm. um, and he starts with this textbook because it, it's a prime example, he thinks, of, of sort of um, popular subjectivism. Gaius and Titius in the Green Book, they talk about that famous episode where the poet Coleridge is, is looking at a waterfall in the, in the Lake District in England, and a, and a fellow tourist describes it as pretty, whereas Coleridge wants to call it sublime. Hmm. And Gaius and Titius say it doesn't really matter whether they call it pretty or sublime because neither term actually relates to 
to anything objective in the waterfall. It's just a, a private subjective uh, projection that each person happens to want to apply to the waterfall. Um, and this really gets Lewis's goat, partly because it's, it's subjectivism, um, which, which is bad enough, but partly also because it's subjectivism smuggled into a book which is supposed to be on another topic about teaching English composition to high schools. Mm -hmm. um, so he sees that there's not just philosophical error on display, but a kind of moral crime that children are being um, indoctrinated into a, into a subjectivist frame of mind before before they've even had a chance to think about it, before they've even been told that there is such a thing as subjectivism. And so it's quite a rhetorically effective opening that Lewis has to the abolition of man because, well, first of all, we all want to protect children, hopefully, from being misled in this way. Uh, they may need to be confronted with difficult philosophy, but it should be done straightforwardly and, and openly. And secondly, you know, more comically, we can all remember boring and bad textbooks that we had to, you know, sit through when we were at school. Hmm. Uh, so it's a, it's a good target for Lewis to aim at uh, for, for various reasons at the start of his work. But it, but we shouldn't get too unduly fixated upon the Green Book. It's really just a kind of springboard into yep. his larger case against subjectivism. Right. Uh, it's also... That attitude towards saying, well, you know, you call it this, and I call it this, and this is really just modes of expression on our part that have to be respected. That That's a very alluring idea to a 15-year-old who's got to write a paper on something. <laughs> <laughs> dangerous, in fact. Dangerous. So, yeah, and, the, and you, to be honest, it's, you, it's alluring to to everybody at every stage of life. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is why subjectivism has has had such traction in the culture, because it's a very convenient philosophy to adopt much of the time, um, because if, if moral value is purely subjective, then you can't tell me what to do. And, and that's nice for me because I want to live my own life, happily, happy-go-lucky me. Uh, I don't want to be interfered with by other people who may want to control me um, and you know uh, wrongful kinds of control do exist um, that, that, that's uh, that's another matter altogether but subjectivism ultimately is a kind of dodge it's a self-serving dodge we want yeah. it to apply to ourselves but we don't want to apply it to other people because we, we, we genuinely see that other people sometimes go seriously and objectively wrong. I mean, um, although we may be very blasé about certain moral values, um, we, we, we take others with dreadful seriousness. Indeed. Subjectivism inclines towards this sort of soft peddling of our sins and the overstrong <laughs> peddling of other people's sins. Yeah. Uh, you say that when Lewis is establishing the importance of an objective moral truth, that he doesn't want to, as you put it, advance a specifically Christian argument. You asked earlier whether this is really a religious treatise or not. Uh, why does Lewis want to hold off from being specifically Christian, even to the point of talking a lot about the Chinese Tao? Yeah, he uses that term, the Tao, from Confucian philosophy as a way of, I think, uh, 
emphasizing his point that what he's talking about is something universal. It's not Western uh, specifically, nor is it specifically Christian. Uh, this is mankind's universal ethical inheritance. This is what it is to be human. Um, now, if you wanted to couch that in Christian terms, you, you could easily do so by pointing, for instance, to the opening chapters of the letter to the Romans, where St. Paul talks about the conscience and about how even the Gentiles who are without the law are a law unto themselves, as, as their conscience now acquits them and now condemns them. Um, it's, from a Christian point of view, the conscience that Lewis is effectively talking about. Um, but he doesn't need to couch it in those ex explicitly Christian terms. It can be developed on purely philosophical lines, and questions of God and Christianity can be left for another day. Mm -hmm. And that, that's precisely what he does do in, in The Abolition of Man. He, Although he admits, quite frankly, in the course of his argument that I am myself a theist and indeed a Christian, I am not attempting here any even indirect argument for Christianity. Um, and I think that's another reason, incidentally, why The Abolition of Man has gone on to acquire such a wide readership, because it's it's philosophy, it's not theology. And you don't have to be a signed up Christian to accept the, the, the position that Lewis is arguing for. Uh, in, our, in our final minutes, Father Ward, did Lewis believe that those people pushing the abolition of man, he calls them at one point the conditioners, uh, at least one, one brand of those pushing this, did he, did he think they're gonna win? He feared that they were going to win, and indeed that they were already winning in certain portions of the battlefield. Um, the The general tone of the abolition of man is quite negative, even bleak. Uh, you know, that's partly why he calls it the abolition of man. He gives it this uh, rather dystopian title because it is a it is largely a negative case that he's making, and largely a warning that he's issuing. Um, he's not painting a very bright future, to be honest. Um, it's a wake-up call that he's issuing. He's he's trying to raise our spirits and, and nerve nerve our muscles and make us fight for what what it is to be human, which which we may we, we may not realise is actually valuable until we've lost it. And and so Lewis is trying to project us imaginatively into the future where we have lost it. Um, you know, just like like all dystopian writers, Aldous Huxley and George Orwell and Lewis himself um, in that hideous strength, they would do it novelistically. Here, Lewis is doing it philosophically. And that's why the very last sentence of the book is uh, to see through all things is the same as not to see. In other hmm. words, he's he's painting a picture of a of a universe that is invisible because we've all become effectively morally blind. Um, everything has become transparent to us, but a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. Hmm. There are certain things that need to be opaque, that we can't see through, and one of those things is objective moral value. That needs to remain opaque to us. It's a premise. It's not a conclusion. We start from moral value. Uh, the Tao surrounds us. We inhabit it whether we like it or not. And often we don't like it and we have to come to terms with it. That's what moral maturation consists in. Uh, but there'll be no maturation at all if we pretend that the Tao just doesn't exist. The, the, this might lead to my final question. In what way does abolition assign death 
a positive value. One of the interesting aspects of Lewis's case is that he, he focuses in on death for a good cause um, as, the, as the crucial test of the objectivity of value. And, and so he repeatedly quotes the old Latin tag from the Roman poet Horace, uh, dulcet decorum est pro patria mori, it's sweet and seemly to die for one's country. And interestingly, he, f he keeps the focus on the Latin there rather than on an equivalent uh, scriptural source, uh, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends, you know, Jesus in John's gospel. Mm -hmm. Lewis, Lewis nods towards Jesus's statement, but he, he keeps coming back to Horace, which is, again, is a rhetorical strategy to remind people that this is not a specifically Christian thing that he's arguing for. Um, but why is it the crucial test of the objectivity of value? Because when we have to die uh, in defense of a good cause, or even when we just have to suffer for it without necessarily dying, um, we reveal to ourselves that the, the value in question is objective. If it were subjective, if it was merely the projection of our own personal private whim or will, well, as soon as we had to start suffering for it, we could change our opinion, couldn't we? So that we needn't, needn't suffer. <laughs> you know, we, we could just wriggle out of it because it's only subjective after all. Why would we suffer or die for anything if moral value was purely our own subjective projection? Um, so this brings home uh, in, a, in a rather, you know, uh, alarming way that moral value is, is not just... Uh, necessary for human interaction, but it's it's going to be uh, a test of our own integrity as individuals. Will we hold to what we know to be true and right, even when it's inconvenient for us, or will we be basically moral invertebrates who just wriggle out of everything as soon as it becomes discomforting. And so, you know, it's quite a challenging book morally from that point of view. Yeah. Uh, it's highly, I highly recommend The Abolition of Man and, uh, and indeed that hideous strength. The book is After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man. Father Ward, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Glad to have been with you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.